Podcastle, number 23, for September 2nd, 2008. Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky, Podcastle's editor. It can be hard to write fantasy in a compressed space. It's a genre of sprawling landscapes, epic battles, good fighting evil on mortal planes wedged between gods and demons. It's a genre of trilogies and books that come stuffed full with maps and glossaries belonging to other worlds. Basically, it's a long genre. Until now, Podcastle, like the other Escape Artists podcasts, has been offering stories that fit neatly into less than an hour, or about the length of a morning commute. Today we're introducing a new feature, Podcastle Giants. Podcastle Giants are just like our other episodes, except they take the room that fantasy sometimes needs in order to sprawl. Podcastle will be airing four giants over the next year, once every three months. They'll be clearly marked both on our blog and in the episodes themselves, so that you can avoid them if you want, or save them for longer than usual drives. The rest of our episodes will remain our normal commute length. Moon Viewing at Shijo Bridge was written by Richard Parks, a Mississippi writer who lives with his wife and a varying number of cats. His first novel, The Long Look, is coming out in September from Five Star Slash Scentage. You can find him online at his blog, ogresan.livejournal.com. Moon Viewing at Shijo Bridge first appeared in Realms of Fantasy. It's read for us by Steve Anderson. Steve does audiobooks, e-learning, and tons of general voice work along with storytelling, living history, and educational and interactive theater. You can get more information about Steve's many projects online at sgacreative.com or greattaleslive.com. Links in this intro are available on our website, podcastle.org. Enjoy the story! Moon Viewing at Shijo Bridge by Richard Parks In the early evening, a tiny moth demon was trying to batter its way into my room through a tear in the paper screen, no doubt attracted by the scent of poverty. I was debating whether to frighten the silly thing away or simply crush it when the widow Tamaharo's delightful voice sent the poor creature fluttering away as fast as its little wings could carry it. "'Yamada-san, you have a visitor!' Tamahara kneeled by the shoji screen that was the only door to my rooms. Besides the volume, there was an edge of excitement in the formidable old woman's voice that worried me just a little. The fact that aristocracy impressed her had worked to my advantage more than once when the rent was late. But her deference meant that just about anyone could get closer to me than might be healthy, that is, if they were of the right station in life. Anyone else giving a hint of trouble in her establishment, she would throw out on their ear if they were lucky. Who is it, Tamahara-san? A messenger, and that is all I know. She's waiting in the courtyard with her escort. She? Well, that explained why Widow Tamahara had not simply brought the person to my rooms. That would not have been proper, and the Widow Tamahara always did the right thing— to the degree that she understood what the right thing was. "'Just a moment,' I said. After some thought, I tucked a long dagger into my sleeve, but left my tachi where it was. I wasn't wearing my best clothes, but my best would have been equally unimpressive. At least everything was clean. I followed Tamahara out into the courtyard. The sun had set, but there was light enough still. 
The woman kneeled near a small pine tree, flanked on either side by her escorts. No rough provincial warriors, these. The two men were polite, impassive, well-dressed, and well-armed. The younger man wore the red and black clothing and bore the butterfly moan of the Taira clan. The other wore plain black and bore no family crest or identification at all. I judged them as best I could. The escort wearing Taira livery I think I could have bested, if absolutely necessary, and with a bit of luck. But the other... Well, let's just say I didn't want any trouble. I also could not escape the feeling that we had met before. I bowed formally, and then kneeled in front of the woman. I noted the rightmost warrior's quick glance at my sleeve, and how he inched almost imperceptibly closer, all the while not appearing to have noticed or moved at all. The man was even more formidable than I had suspected, but now my attention was on the woman. Her kimono was very simple, as befitted a servant, two shades of blue at most, though impeccably appropriate for the time of year. She wore a boshi with a long veil that circled the brim and hid her features. Naturally, she did not remove it. She merely bowed again from her seated position and held out a scroll resting on the palms of her small hands. I took the offered scroll, all the while careful to make no sudden movements, and unrolled it to read, The peony bows to no avail, the march wind is fierce, unceasing. Caught like a rabbit in a snare, and so damn easily, just the first three lines of a tongue ka. The poem was not yet complete, of course. The rest was up to me. I looked at the shadow of the woman's face, hidden behind the veil. Are you instructed to await my reply? Again she bowed without speaking. The escort on her right produced a pen case and ink. I considered for a few moments, then added the following two lines. The donkey kneels down to rest. In his shadow flowers grow. My poetic skills, never more than adequate, were a little rusty, and the result wasn't better than passable. Yet the form was correct, and the meaning, like that of the first segment, more than clear to the one who would read it. The woman took the message from me, bowed again, then rose as one with her escort, and withdrew quickly without further ceremony. The widow Tamahara watched all this from the discreet distance of the veranda encircling the courtyard. Is this work? she asked when I passed her on the way back to my room. Will you be paid? Yes, seems the likely answer to both, I said, though that was mostly to placate the old woman. I was fairly certain I would be the one paying, one way or the other. Later that evening, I didn't bother to prepare my bedding. I waited, fully clothed and in the darkness of my room, for my inevitable visitor. The summons was clear and urgent, but I couldn't simply answer it. The matter was much more complicated than that. The full moon cast the man's shadow across the thin screen that was my doorway. It wasn't a mistake. He wanted me to know he was there. I pulled the screen aside, but I was pretty sure I knew who would be waiting. He kneeled on the veranda, the hilt of his sword clearly visible. Lord Yamada, my name is Kanamora. Lord was technically correct, but a little jarring to hear apply to me again. Especially coming from a man who was the son of an emperor, 
I finally realized who he was. Prince Kanamora. You were named after the poet Taira no Kanamora, weren't you? I asked. He smiled then, or perhaps it was a trick of the moonlight. My mother thought that having a famous poet for a namesake might gentle my nature. In that, I fear, she was mistaken. So, you remember me? I do. Even when you were not at court, your sister, Princess Taiko, always spoke highly of you. He smiled faintly. And so, back to the matter at hand. Lord Yamada, I am charged to bring you safely to the Imperial Compound. The light was poor, but I used what there was to study the man a little more closely than I'd had time to do at our meeting earlier in the day. He was somewhat younger than I, perhaps thirty or so, and quite handsome, except for a fresh scar that began on his left cheek and reached his jawline. He studied me just as intently. I didn't want to speculate on what his conclusions might be. Whether caused by my involvement or the situation itself, I still didn't have any idea what that was. Kanamura was not happy. His face betrayed nothing, but his entire being was as tense as a bow at full draw. I am ready, Prince Kanamura. Just Kanamura, please. With the Emperor's permission, I will renounce my title and found a new clan, since it is neither my destiny nor wish to ascend the throne. I am Goji. Lead on, then. The streets were dark and poorly lit. I saw the flare of an Onibi down an alleyway and knew the ghosts were about. At this time of evening, demons were a possibility, too, but one of the beauties of Kyoto was that the multitude of temples and shrines tended to make the atmosphere uncomfortable for most of the fiercer demons and monsters. The rest, like that moth demon, were used to skulking about the niches and small spaces of the city, unnoticed and deliberately so, being vulnerable to both exorcism and common steel. We reached the Kamo River without incident and crossed at the Shijo Bridge. The full moon was high now, reflecting off the water. Farther downstream, I saw an entire procession of ghost lights floating above the water. I'm not sure that Kanamura saw the Onibi at all. His attention was focused on the moon's reflection as he paused for a second or two to admire it. I found this oddly reassuring. A man who did not pause to view a full moon at opportunity had no soul. But the fact that his moon viewing amounted to little more than a hesitation on Shijo Bridge showed his attention to duty. I already knew I did not want Kanamura as my enemy. Now I wondered if we could be friends. Do you know what this is about? I asked. Explanations are best left to my sister, he said. My understanding is far from complete. At this point I will be glad of scraps. I only know that Princess Taiko is in difficulty. He corrected me instantly. It is her son, Takahito, that concerns my sister most. She always thinks of him first. I didn't like the direction this conversation was taking. Is Takahito unwell? He is healthy, Kanamura said, and still his half-brother's heir at present. That was far too ominous. Kanamura-san, it was my understanding that the late emperor only allowed the current emperor to ascend on the condition that Takahito be named heir after him, and that Takahito, in turn, take his royal grandfather's name, Sancho, upon his eventual ascent. 
Is Emperor Reizei thinking of defying his father's wishes? Kanamura looked uncomfortable. There have been complications. Plus, the Fujiwara favor another candidate, Prince Norihira. He is considered more agreeable. I will say no more at present. More agreeable because, unlike Princess Teiko, Norihira's mother was Fujiwara. I considered this. If the Fujiwara clan supported another candidate, then this was bad news for Teiko's son. As the Taira and Minamoto and other military families were the might of the emperor, so were the Fujiwara his administration. Court ministers and minor officials alike were drawn primarily from their ranks. All power was the emperor's in theory, but in practice his role was mostly ceremonial. It was the Fujiwara who kept the government in motion. Still, the politics of the imperial court and the machinations of the Fujiwara were both subjects I had happily abandoned years ago. Now it appeared that I needed to renew my understanding, and quickly. Despite my desire to question him further, I knew that Kanamura had said all he was going to say on the matter for now. I changed the subject. Did you see much fighting when you were in the north? A bit, he admitted. The Abe clan is contained, but not yet defeated. He trailed off, then stopped and turned toward me. Goji-san, are you a seer in addition to your other rumored talents? How did you know I had been in the north? I tried to keep from smiling. That scar on your jaw is from a blade and fairly new. Even if you were inclined to brawling, which I seriously doubt, I don't believe the average drunken Samuru could so much as touch you. That leaves the northern campaigns as the only reasonable conclusion. It was an educated guess, no more. He rubbed his scar thoughtfully. Impressive, even so. But the hour grows late, and I think we should be on our way. We had taken no more than a few steps when two Bushi staggered out of a nearby drinking establishment. One collided with me and muttered a slurred curse and reached for his sword. I didn't give the fool time to draw it. I struck him with my open palm square on the chin, and his head snapped back and collided with a very hard lintel post. Fortunately for him, since Kanamore's tachi was already clear of its scabbard and poised for the blow swordsmen like to call the pear-splitter, because that's what the victim's bisected head would resemble once the blow was completed. I have no doubt that Kanamore would have demonstrated this classic technique on that drunken lout had I not been in the path of his sword. The drunk's equally inebriated companion had his own sword half-drawn, but took a long look at Kanamura and thought better of it. He sheathed his sword, bowed in a rather grudging apology, and helped his addled friend to his feet. Together they staggered off into the night. Kanamura watched them disappear before he put his sword away. That too was impressive, but pointless. You should have let me kill him. One less provincial thug swaggering about the city. Who would miss him? I sighed. His lord, for a start. Who would demand an explanation, and the man's companion would say one thing, and we would say another, and justice ministers would become involved, and there would be time spent away from the matter at hand that I don't think we can afford. Or am I mistaken? Kanamura smiled. I must again concede that you are not. I'm beginning to see why my honored sister has summoned you. May your lack of error continue for all our sakes. 
The south gate to the imperial compound was closest, but Kanamura led me to the east gate, which was guarded by Bushi in the red and black Taira colors, one of whom I recognized as the messenger's other escort. They stood aside for Kanamura, and no questions were asked. We weren't going to the palace proper. The imperial compound covered a large area in the city, and there were many smaller buildings of various function spread out through the grounds, including houses for the emperor's wives and favorites. Considering our destination, it was clear we needed to attract as little attention as possible. Kanamura led me through some of the more obscure garden paths. At least, they had been obscure to other people. I remembered most of them from my time at court. Losing access to the gardens was one of two regrets I had about leaving the court. Princess Taiko was the other. Kanamura escorted me to a fine, large house, a small palace, actually, and quite suitable for the widow of an emperor. A group of very well-dressed and important-looking visitors was leaving as we arrived, and we stepped aside on the walkway to let them pass. There was only one I recognized in the lamplight before I kneeled as courtesy demanded. Fujiwara no Sentaro. It seemed only fitting. My one visit to the compound in close to fifteen years, and I would encounter my least favorite person at the imperial court— the coldness of Kanamura's demeanor as they walked by wasn't exactly lost on me either. If Sentaro recognized me, he gave no sign. Possibly he'd have forgotten me by now. But then a good politician did not forget an enemy while the enemy still drew breath. I gather Lord Sentaro is not in your favor, I asked after they had gone. To call him a pig would be an insult to pigs, Kanamura said bluntly. But... He is the minister of justice, a skilled administrator, and has our emperor's confidence. The gods may decree that he becomes chancellor after Lord Yorimichi, as luck seems to favor the man. My sister, for some reason I cannot fathom, bears his company from time to time. I started to say something about the realities of court life, but thought better of it. While the saints teach us that life is an illusion... Sentaro's presence indicated that, sadly, some aspects of life did not change, illusion or not. We climbed the steps to the veranda. Teiko Hime is expecting us, Kanamura said to the bushi flanking the doorway, but clearly they already knew that and stepped back as we approached. A servant girl pulled the screen aside, and we stepped into a large open room, impeccably furnished with bright silk cushions and flowers in artful arrangements and lit by several paper lanterns. There was a dais on the far wall, curtained off, and doubtless a sliding screen behind it that would allow someone to enter the room without being seen. I had hoped to at least get a glimpse of Teiko, but of course that wasn't proper. I knew the rules, even if I didn't always follow them. Kanamura kneeled on a cushion near the dais, and I followed his example. My sister has been informed, he started to say, but didn't get to finish. Your older sister is here, Kanamure-kun. Two more maids, impeccably dressed in layered yellow and blue kimono, entered the room and pulled back the curtain. A veil remained in front of the dais, translucent but not fully transparent. I could see the ghostly form of a woman kneeling there, her long black hair down loose and flowing over her shoulders. I didn't need to see her clearly to know it was the same woman who had brought the message to me in the courtyard, and whose face I had not seen then either. No need. 
way she moved, the elegance of a gesture, both betrayed her. Now I heard Teiko's voice again, and that was more than enough. Kanamora and I both bowed low. There was silence, and then that beautiful voice again chiding me. A donkey, Lord Yamada, honestly. I tried not to smile, but it was hard. My poetry is somewhat uh, untrained, Teiko Hime. Teiko, please, we are old friends. At this, Kanamora gave me a hard glance, but I ignored him. He was no longer the most dangerous person in my vicinity, and I needed all my attention for the one who was. I think there is something you wish to discuss with me, I said. Is this possible? It was the most polite way I knew to phrase the question, but Tiko waved it aside. There is no one within hearing, she said, who has not already heard. You may speak plainly, Lord Yamada. I will do the same. I need your help. You have read my answer, I said. True, but you have not heard my trouble, Teiko said softly. Listen, and then tell me what you will or will not do. Now then, do you remember a young Fujiwara named Kiyoshi? That was a name I had not heard in a long time. Kiyoshi was about my age when I came to the court as a very minor official of the household. Since he was handsome, bright, and a Fujiwara, his destiny seemed fixed. Like Kanamura, he chose the Bushi path instead and died fighting the northern barbarians. He was one of the few of that clan I could tolerate, and I sincerely mourned his death. I do remember him, I said. There is a rumor going around the court that Kiyoshi was my lover and that my son Takahito is his issue, not my late husband's. For a moment I could not speak. This matter was beyond serious. Gossip was close to the rule of law at court, if this particular gossip was not silenced, both Takahito's and Teiko's positions at court were in peril, and that was just for a start. Do you know who was responsible for the slander? No. While it's true that Kiyoshi was very dear to me, we grew up together at court, and our affections to each other were as brother and sister, as was well understood at the time. You know this to be true. I did, if I knew anything. And you wish for me to discover the culprit— that will be difficult. She laughed softly then, decorously covering her face with her fan, even though the veils prevented me from seeing her face clearly. Lord Yamada, even if I knew who started the rumors, it would do little good. People repeat the gossip without even knowing who they heard it from. What I require now is tangible and very public proof that the rumors are false. I considered... I think that will be difficult as well. The only one who could swear to your innocence died fifteen years ago. Or am I to pursue his ghost? She laughed again. The sound was enchanting. But then everything about her was enchanting to me. There was a reason Princess Tiiko was the most dangerous person in that room. I found myself feeling grateful that the screen was in place as I forced myself to concentrate on the business at hand. Nothing so distasteful, she said. Besides, Kiyoshi died in loving service to my husband, the late emperor, and on the path he himself chose. If he left a ghost behind, I would be quite surprised. No, Lord Yamada, Kiyoshi left something far more reliable. A letter. He sent it to me when he was in the north, just before his final battle. It was intended for his favorite, and was accompanied by a second letter for me. I frowned. Why didn't he send this letter to the lady directly? 
She sighed then. Lord Yamada, are you a donkey after all? He couldn't very well do so without compromising her. My friendship with Kiyoshi was well known. No one would think twice if I received a letter from him in those days. In his favorite's case, the situation was quite different. You know the penalty for a lady of the court who takes a lover openly. I bowed again. I did know, and vividly, banishment, or worse. Yet, for someone born for the court and knowing no other life, there probably was nothing worse. Then clearly we need to acquire this letter. If it still exists, I imagine the lady in question will be reluctant to part with it. The letter was never delivered to her. Teiko raised her hand to silence me before I even began. Do not think so ill of me, Lord Yamada. News of Kiyoshi's death reached us months before his letter did. By then my husband had given the wretched girl in marriage to the daimyo of a western province as reward for some service or other, so her romantic history is no longer at issue. Since Kiyoshi's letter was not intended for me, I never opened it. I should have destroyed it, I know, but I could not. Perhaps foolish, but potentially fortunate. Yet I presume there is a problem still, or I would not be here. The letter is missing, Lord Yamada. Without it, I have no hope of saving my reputation and my son's future from the crush of gossip. I let out a breath. When did you notice the letter was stolen? Lord Centaro says it disappeared three days ago. Now, I really didn't understand, and judging from the grunt to my immediate right, neither did Kanamura. What has Lord Centaro to do with this? He is the Emperor's Minister of Justice. In order to clear my reputation, I had to let him know of the letter's existence and arrange a time for the letter to be read and witnessed. He asked that it be given to him for safekeeping. Since he is also Kiyoshi's uncle, I couldn't very well refuse. She said it so calmly, and yet she had just admitted, cutting her own throat. Teiko Hime, as much as this pains me to say, the letter has surely been destroyed. There was nothing but silence on the other side of the veil for several seconds. Then she simply asked, Oh, what makes you think so? I glanced at Kanamura, but there was no help from that direction. He looked as confused as I felt. Your pardon, Highness, but it's my understanding that the Fujiwara have their own candidate for the throne. As a member of that family, it is in Lord Santaro's interest that the letter never resurface. Lord Santaro is perhaps overly ambitious, Teiko said, and there was a more than hint of winter ice in her voice. But he is also an honorable man. He was just here to acquaint me with the progress of the search. I believe him when he says the letter was stolen. I have less confidence in his ability to recover it. Lord Yamada, will you help me or not? I bowed again and made the only answer I could. If it lies within my power, I will find that letter for you. That, said Kanamura later after we passed through the eastern gate, was very strange. The man, besides his martial prowess, had quite a gift for understatement. You didn't know about the letter. Teiko never mentioned it before, though it doesn't surprise me. Yet, the business with the Minister of Justice does surprise you, yes? He looked at me. Since my sister trusts you, I will speak plainly. Lord Santaro is Chancellor Yorimichi's primary agent in the Fujiwara opposition to Takahito. 
If I had been in Lord Centaro's place, I would have destroyed that letter the moment it fell into my hands and danced a tribute to the gods of luck while it burned. I rubbed my chin. Yet Teiko Hime is convinced that the letter was not destroyed. Kanamura grunted again. Over the years I've gone where my emperor and his government have required. My sister, on the other hand, knows no world other than the imperial court. If Teiko were a koi... The court would be her pond, if you take my meaning. So why would something that is immediately obvious to us both be so unclear to her? Perhaps we're the ones who aren't clear, I said. Let's assume for the moment that your sister is right and that the letter was simply stolen. That would mean that Lord Centaro had a good reason for not destroying it in the first place. That makes sense. Yet I'm having some difficulty imagining that reason, Kanamura admitted. As am I. I looked around. Our path paralleled the river Kamo for a time, then turned southwest. Despite the lateness of the hour, there were a few people on the road, apparently all in a hurry to reach their destinations. Demons were about at this time of night, and everyone's hurry and wariness was understandable. Kanamura and I were the only ones walking at a normal pace by the light of the setting moon. Your escort duties must be over by now, and as I'm sure you know, I'm used to moving about the city on my own, I said. Kanamura looked a little uncomfortable. It was Teiko's request. I know you can take care of yourself under most circumstances, Kanamura said, and it almost sounded like a compliment. But if someone did steal the letter, they obviously would not want it found, and your audience with my sister will not be a secret. Sentaro himself saw you for one. I didn't think he recognized me. I would not depend on that, Kanamura said dryly. The man forgets nothing. His enemies doubly so. You flatter me. I was no threat to him, no matter how I might have wished otherwise. Why did you resign your position and leave the court, if I may be so impolite as to ask? It could not have been easy to secure the appointment in the first place. I had no doubt he'd already heard the story from Teiko, but I didn't mind repeating events as I remembered them. Your sister was kind to me in those early days. Of course, there would be those at court who chose to misinterpret her interest. I had become a potential embarrassment to Princess Teiko, as Lord Santaro delighted in making known to me. Meaning he would have made certain of it, Kanamura said. I wondered. I shrugged. I made my choice. Destiny is neither cruel nor kind. So, Kanamura-san, I've answered a personal question of yours. Now I must ask one of you. What are you afraid of? Death, he said immediately. I've never let that fear prevent me from doing what I must. But the fear remains. That just means you're not a fool, which I already knew. So, you fear death. Do you fear things that are already dead? No, well... Not especially, he said, though he didn't sound completely convincing or convinced. Why do you ask? Because I'm going to need help. If the letter is in the Imperial compound, it's beyond even your reach. Searching would be both dangerous and time-consuming. Certainly, Kanamura agreed. Yet what's the alternative? The help I spoke of. We're going to need several measures of uncooked rice. He frowned. I know where such can be had. Are you hungry? No. But I can assure you that my informant is. 
About an hour later, we passed through Rashomon, the southwest gate. There was no one about at this hour. The southwest exit of the city, like the northeast, was not a fortunate direction, as the priests often said these were the directions from which both demons and trouble in general could enter the city. I sometimes wondered why anyone bothered to build gates at such places, since it seemed to be asking for trouble. Yet I supposed the demands of roads and travelers outweighed the risks. Even so, the most hardened Bushi would not accept a night watch at the Rasha Gate. The bridge, I sought, was part of a ruined family compound just outside the city proper, now marked by a broken-down wall and the remnants of a garden. In another place, I would have thought this the aftermath of a war, but not here. Still, death often led to the abandonment of a home. No doubt this family had transferred their fortunes elsewhere and allowed this place to go to ruin. Wasteful, but not unusual. The compound was still in darkness, but there was a glow in the east. Dawn was coming. I hurried through the ruins while Kanamora kept pace with me, his hand on his sword. There were vines growing on the stone bridge on the far side of the garden, but it was still intact and passable, giving an easy path over the wide stream beneath it. Not that crossing the stream was the issue. I pulled out one of the small bags of uncooked rice that Kanamora had supplied and opened it to let the scent drift freely on the night breezes. The red lantern appeared almost instantly. It floated over the curve of the bridge as if carried by someone invisible, but that wasn't really the case. The lantern carried itself. Its one glowing eye opened, and then its mouth. I hadn't spoken to the ghost in some time, and perhaps I was misremembering, but it seemed much bigger than it had been on our first meeting. Still... That wasn't what caught my immediate attention. It was the long, pointed teeth. Saita did not have teeth. Lord Yamada, drop! I didn't question or hesitate, but threw myself flat on the ground, just as the lantern surged forward and its mouth changed into a gaping maw. A shadow loomed over me, and then there was a flash of silver in the poor light. The lantern shrieked and then dissolved in a flare of light as if burning to ashes from within. I looked up, to see the neatly sliced open corpse of a yukai lying a few feet away from me. The thing was ugly, even for a monster. A full eight feet tall, and most of that consisting of mouth. The thing already stank like a cesspit, and in another moment it dissolved into black sludge, and then vanished. I saw what looked like a scrap of paper fluttering on a weed before it blew away into the darkness. Where did the creature go? I didn't have time to ponder. Another lantern appeared on the bridge, and Kanamora made ready, but I got to my feet quickly. Stop, it's all right. And so it was. Saita came gliding over the bridge, with his one eye cautiously watching the pair of us. Now I recognized the tear in the paper near his base, and his generally tatty appearance, things that had been missing from the impostor's disguise. "'Thank you for ridding me of that unpleasant fellow,' he said. "'But don't think for a moment that will warrant a discount.' Kanamura just stared at the ghost for a moment, then glanced at me, but I indicated silence. "'Saita-san, you at least owe me an explanation for allowing your patron to walk into an ambush. How long has that thing been here?' I think Saita tried to shrug. But that's hard to do when your usual manifestation is a red paper lantern with one eye and one mouth and no arms, legs, or shoulders. 
a day or so. Damned impertinent of it to usurp my bridge. But it was strong, and I couldn't make it leave. I think it was waiting on someone. You, perhaps. Perhaps. Almost certainly. Yet that doesn't concern me now. I need your services. So I assumed, said the lantern. What do you want to know? A letter was stolen from the Imperial compound three days ago. I need to know who took it and where that letter is now. It bears the scent of Fujiwara no Kiyoshi, among others. Kanamura could remain silent no more. He leaned close and whispered, Can this thing be trusted? That thing, remark, raises the price, Saita said. Four bowls. I apologize on behalf of my companion. Two now, I countered. Two more when the information is delivered. Bring the answer by tomorrow night, and I'll add an extra bowl. The lantern grinned very broadly. Then you can produce five bowls of uncooked rice right now. I have your answer. That surprised me. I'd expected at least a day's delay. Say, Tassan, I know you're good or I wouldn't have come to you first. But how could you possibly know about the letter already? Were the Rei involved? He looked a little insulted. Lord Yamada, we ghosts have higher concerns than petty theft. This was the work of Shikigami. The fact that they were about in the first place caught my attention, but I do not know who sent them. That is a separate question and won't be answered so quickly or easily. Time is short. I'll settle for the location of the letter. Saita gave us directions to where the letter was hidden. We left the rice in small bags, with chopsticks thrust upright through the openings, as proper for an offering to the dead. I offered a quick prayer for Saita's soul, but we didn't stay to watch. I'd seen the ghost consume an offering before, and it was... unsettling. Can that thing be trusted, Kanamura repeated when we were out of earshot of the bridge. And what is this Shikigami it was referring to? As for trusting Saita, we shall soon know. That thing you killed at the bridge was a Shikigami. And it's very strange to encounter one here. Thank you, by the way. I owe you my life. Kanamura grunted. My duty served, though you are quite welcome. Still, you make deals with ghosts, and encountering a simple monster is strange. A Shikigami is not a monster, simple or otherwise. A yukai is its own creature and has its own volition, nasty and evil though that may be. A Shikigami is a created thing. It has no will of its own, only that of the one who created it. He frowned. Are you speaking of sorcery? Yes, I said, and of a high order. I should have realized when the thing disappeared. A monster or demon is a physical creature, and when slain, leaves a corpse like you or I would. A Shigigami almost literally has no separate existence. When its purpose is served or its physical form too badly damaged, it simply disappears. At most, it might leave a scrap of paper or some element of what was used to create it. So one of those artificial servants acquired the letter and hid it in the Rasha Gate. Fortunate, since that's on our way back into the city. Very fortunate. Kanamura glanced at me. You seem troubled. Do you doubt the ghost's information? Say, rather, I'm pondering something I don't understand. There were rumors that Lord Santaro dabbled in Chinese magic even when I was at court. Yet why would he choose Shikigami to spirit the letter away? It was in his possession to begin with. 
removing it and making that removal seem like theft would be simple enough to arrange without resorting to such means. Kanamura shrugged. I've heard these rumors as well, but I gave them no credence. Even so, it is the letter that concerns me, not the working of Lord Centauro's twisted mind. Concentrating on the matter at hand seemed a very sensible suggestion, and I abandoned my musings as we approached the deserted Rasha Gate. At least, it had seemed deserted when we passed through it earlier that evening. I was not so certain of that now. I rather regretted having to leave my sword behind for my audience with Teiko Hime, but I still had my dagger, and I made certain it was loose in its sheath. The gate structure loomed above us. We checked around the house as far as we could, but found no obvious hiding places. Now and then I heard a faint rustle, like someone winding and unwinding a scroll. Kanamura was testing the looseness of a stone on the west side of the gate. I motioned him to be still, and listened more closely. After a few moments the sound came again, from above. This time Kanamura heard it too. He put his sword aside in favor of his own long dagger, which he clenched in his teeth like a Chinese pirate as he climbed the wooden beams and crossbars that supported the gate. I quickly followed his example, or as quickly as I could manage. Kanamura climbed like a monkey, whereas I was not quite so nimble. Still, I was only a few seconds behind him when he reached the gap between the gate frame and the elaborate roof. Goji-san, they are here! I didn't have to ask who they were. The first of the Shikigami plummeted past, missing me by inches before it dissolved. If the body survived long enough to strike the flagstones, I never heard it. But then I wasn't listening. I hauled myself over the top beam and landed in a crouch. I needn't have bothered. The gap under the roof was quite tall enough for me to stand. Kanamura had two other lumbering Shikigami at bay, but a third moved to attack him from the rear. It was different from the other two. Snake-like, it slithered across the floor, fangs bared, and its one yellow eye fixed on Kanamura's naked heel. I was too far away. Behind you! I threw myself forward and buried my dagger in the creature near the tip of its tail, which was all I could reach. Even there, the thing was as thick as my arm. But I felt the dagger pierce the tail completely and bury its tip in the wood beneath it. My attack barely slowed the creature. There was a sound like the tearing of paper as it ripped itself loose from my blade to get at Kanamura. Kanamura glanced behind him and, to my surprise, took one step backward. Just as the creature's fangs reached for him, he very swiftly lifted his left foot, pointed his heel, and thrust it down on the creature's neck just behind the head. There was a snap like the breaking of a green twig, and the serpent began to dissolve. In that instant, the other two Shikigami seized the chance and attacked, like their companion, in utter silence. Look out! I could have saved my breath. Kanamura's dagger blade was already a blur of motion, crisscrossing the space in front of him like a swarm of wasps. Even if the other two creatures intended to scream, they had no time before they too dissolved into the oblivion from whence they came. Kanamura was barely breathing hard. Remind me to never fight on any side of a battle opposite yourself, I said as I got back off the floor. One doesn't always get to choose one's battles, Kanamura said dryly. In any case, it seems you've returned the favor for my earlier rescue, so we may call our accounts settled in that regard. I picked up a ragged bit of mulberry paper, apparently all that remained of our recent foes. There were a few carefully printed kanji, 
but they were faded and impossible to read. Fine quality. These servitors were expensive. And futile, if we can assume they were guarding something of value. It didn't take long to find what we were searching for. I located a small pottery jar hidden in a mortise on one of the beams and broke it open with my dagger hilt. A scroll lay within. It was tied with silk strings, and the string's ends, in turn, were pressed together and sealed with beeswax, impressed with the Fujiwara mon. I examined it closely as Kanamura looked on. Your sister will have to confirm this, I said at last, but this does appear to be the missing letter. The relief on the man's face was almost painful to see. And now I am in your debt again, Lord Yamada. It has been a long night, and we are both weary. Yet I do not think that this can wait. Let us return to the palace now. It will be stirring by the time we arrive. The lack of sleep, plus the sudden stress of the fight, now relieved, had left me feeling as wrung out as a washerwoman's towel. I knew Kanamura must have been nearly as bad off, even though from his stoic demeanor I'd have thought he could take on another half-dozen shikigami without breaking a sweat. We'll go directly, I said, but I'm going to need a breath or two before I try that climb again. You could do with some rest yourself. He nodded, and only then allowed himself to sit down in that now empty place. I am too tired to argue, so you must be right. We greeted the dawn like two roof dragons from the top of the Rasha Gate, and then made our way back into the city. The Imperial compound was already alive with activity by then, but Kanamura didn't bother with circuitous routes. We proceeded directly to Teiko Hime's manor, and at the fastest speed decorum allowed. We probably attracted more attention than we wanted to, but Kanamura was in no mood for more delays. Neither was I, truth to tell, but Teiko Hime had not yet risen, and I had to wait on the veranda while Kanamura acquainted his sister with the news. I waited. And I waited. I was starting to feel a little insulted by the time Kanamura finally reappeared. But he did not come from the house. He came hurrying through the garden path, and his face... Well, I hope I never see that expression again on a human being. I am truly sorry to have kept you waiting, Lord Yamada. This... I was to give you this. This was a heavy pouch of quilted silk. Inside were half a dozen small cylinders of pure gold. I took pride in the fact that I only stared at them for a moment or two. Kanamura-san, what has happened? I cannot. I think you can. I think I will have to insist. His eyes did recover a little of their old fire then, but it quickly died away. My sister was adamant that we deal with the matter at once. I escorted her to the Ministry of Justice as she insisted. I guess the burden of waiting had been too much. She did not even give me time to fetch you. How could she be so reckless? I felt my spirit grow cold, and my own voice sounded lifeless in my ears. The letter was read at the Ministry, without knowing its contents. Normally these matters take weeks— but considering what had happened to the letter under his care, Lord Sentaro couldn't very well refuse Teiko's demand for an audience. I must say in his favor that he tried to dissuade her, but she insisted he read it before the court. We all heard. We all saw. I put my hands on his shoulders, 
but I'm not even sure he noticed. Kanamora? He did look at me then, and he recited a poem. The wisteria pines, alone in desolation, without the bright peony. I could hardly believe what I was hearing. Three lines of an incomplete tanka, like the three that Teiko had used to draw me back to court. These three, in turn, had damned her. Wisteria was, of course, a reference to the Fujiwara family crest, and Peony had been Teiko's nickname at court since the age of seven. Clearly, the poem had been hers to complete and return to Kiyoshi. The imagery and tone were clear, too. There was no one who could hear those words and doubt that Kiyoshi and Teiko had been lovers. For any woman at court, it would have been indiscreet. For an imperial wife, it amounted to treason. What is to be done? I asked. My sister is stripped of her titles and all court honors. She will be confined and then banished. And here Kanamura's strength failed him, and it was several heartbeats before he could finish. Exiled to the northern coast at Suma. Say, rather, to the ends of the earth. It was a little short of an execution. Surely there is nothing, Goshi-san. In our ignorance we have done more than enough. The writ is sealed. He left me there to find my own way out of the compound. It was a long time before I bothered to try. It took longer to settle my affairs in Kyoto than I'd hoped, but the gold meant that the matter would be merely difficult, not impossible. The widow Tamahara was, perhaps, one of the very few people genuinely sorry to see me leave. I sold what remained of my belongings and kept only what I could carry, along with my new traveling clothes, my sword, and the balance of the gold, which was still quite substantial. On the appointed day, I was ready. Tiiko's party emerged from the eastern gate of the compound through the entrance still guarded by the Taira. Yet Bushi of the Minamoto clan formed the bulk of her escort. Kanamura was with them, as I knew he would be. His eyes were sad, but he held his head high. Normally, a lady of Teiko's birth would have traveled in a covered ox cart hidden from curious eyes. But now she walked, wearing the plain traveling clothes that she used to bring that first message in disguise, completing her disgrace. Still... I'd recognized her then, as I did now. When the somber procession had moved a discreet distance down the road, I fell in behind, just another traveler on the northern road. I was a little surprised when the party took the northeast road toward Lake Biwa, but I was able to learn from an attendant that Teiko wished to make a pilgrimage to the sacred lake before beginning her new life at Suma. Since it was only slightly out of the way, her escort had seen no reason to object. Neither did I, for that matter, since I was determined to follow regardless. The mountains surrounding the lake slowed the procession's progress, and it took three days to get there. When the party made camp on the evening of the third day, I did the same nearby. I wasn't terribly surprised to find Kanamura looming over me on my small fire within a very short time, I was just making tea, Kanamura-san. Would you care for some? He didn't meet my gaze. 
My sister has instructed me to tell you to go home. I have no home. In which case, I am instructed to tell you to go someplace else. I should warn you that should you reply that where you are now is someplace else, she has requested that I beat you senseless, but with affection. I nodded, anticipated my response. That's the Teiko I always knew. So, are you also instructed to kill me if I refuse your sister's order? Now, he did look me squarely in the eye. If killing you would atone for my own foolishness, Kanamura said, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Yet I cannot blame you for what happened, try as I might. You only did as my sister bid, as did you, I pointed out. He managed a weak smile. Even so, we still share some of the responsibility for what happened. I could not prevent her disgrace, so I am determined to share it. That is my wish as well, I said. You have no, he began, but did not finish. Exactly. My failure gives me that right, if nothing else does. Now consider, what about Prince Takahito, your nephew? Where is he? At court. Takahito, of course, asked to accompany his mother, but permission was refused. Indeed. And now he remains at court, surrounded by his enemies. Who will look after him? Do not lecture me on my duties. Who, then, shall look after my sister? These men are to escort her to Suma. They will not remain and protect her afterward. I waved that aside. I well understand the burden of conflicting obligations. Your instinct for love and loyalty is to protect both your sister and her son. How will you accomplish this when they are practically on opposite ends of the earth? Which path would Tihiko choose for you? His face reddened slightly. I could tell that the subject had already come up. Repeatedly, if I knew Tihiko. We've spoken our minds plainly to each other in the past, Kanamura-san, and I will do the same now. Your sister is going to a place where life is harsh, and she will be forced to make her own way. Despite her great gifts, neither she nor her two charming and loyal attendants have the vaguest idea of how to survive outside the shelter of the imperial court. I do. Kanamura didn't say anything for several long minutes. My sister is the daughter of an emperor. She was born to be the mother of an emperor, he said finally. If that were the case, then it would still be so, I said. Life does not always meet our expectations, but that should not prevent us from seeking what happiness we can. You are unworthy of Princess Teiko, Kanamura said, expressionless, and I say that as someone who holds you in high regard. Yet you are also right. For what little it may be worth, I will speak to my sister. When I finish my tea, I said, and with your sister's permission, so will I. Teiko agreed to see me, perhaps because she saw no good way to prevent it. After fifteen years, I did not care what her reasons might be. The fact that she did agree was enough. I found her sitting by herself in a small clearing. She gazed out at a lovely view of Lake Biwa beyond her. 
The sun had dipped just below the mountains, ringing the lake, and the water had turned a deep azure. Tayiko's escort was present, but out of earshot, as were both of her attendants. She held an empty teacup. The rice cakes beside her looked hardly touched. She still wore her boshi, but the veil was pulled back now to reveal her face. It was a gift, I knew, and I was grateful. I can't say that she hadn't changed at all in fifteen years. There might have been one or two grey strands among the glossy black of her hair, perhaps a line or two on her face. I can say that the changes didn't matter. She was, and remained, beautiful. She looked up and smiled at me a little wistfully as I kneeled, not quite in front of her, but a little to the side, so as not to spoil her view. So, have you come to lecture me on my recklessness as well? Please yourself, but be warned. My brother has worried that topic to exhaustion. Your brother thinks only of you, yet what's done cannot be undone. Life is uncertain in all regards, Teiko said very seriously. Then she managed to smile and waved a hand at the vast stretch of water nearby. An appropriate setting, don't you think? I must look like a fisherman's wife now. What shall I do, Etsuma, Lord Yamata? Go bare-breasted like the Abalone maidens and dive for shells? Learn to gather seaweed to make salt like those two lovers of the exiled poet? Can you imagine me, hair loose and legs bared, gleaning the shore? I can easily so imagine, I said. She sighed. Then your imagination is better than mine. I am a worthless creature now. That is not possible. She smiled at me. There were dimples in her cheeks. You are kind, Goji-san. I'm glad that the years have not changed this about you. She offered me a cup of tea from the small pot nearby, but I declined. She poured herself another, while I pondered yet again the best way to frame one of the questions that had been troubling me. I finally decided that there simply was no good way if I chose to ask. No lectures, Teiko Hime, but I must ask about the letter. Her expression was unreadable. Just Teiko, please, especially now. So, you're curious about Kiyoshi's letter, of course. That poem was unexpected. You weren't Kiyoshi's lover, I said. Teiko smiled a little wistfully. You know I was not, she said. But at the moment there is no explanation I can offer you. I'm not asking for one. What's done is done. She sipped her tea. Many things have been done, Goji-san. There is more to come, whatever our place in the order of events may be. Speaking of which, my brother, in his own delicate way, hints that there is another matter you wish to speak to me about. I am going to Suma, I said. That is noble, but pointless. Your life is in Kyoto. My life is as and where it is fated to be. But still, I am going to Suma, I repeated. Do you require me to say why? She actually blushed then, but it did not last. You say that what's done cannot be undone. Perhaps that is true. But you do not yet know all that has been done. As at our last meeting, I must ask you to listen to me, and then decide what you will or will not do. 
Please. I am listening. You left court because people were starting to talk about us. Yes. When the Emperor bestowed his favor on you, Lord Centaro did no more or less than what I asked him to do. For a little while, I forgot to breathe. I idly wondered, somewhere above the roar in my ears, whether I ever would again. What? You? It's unforgivable, I know. But I was not much more than a child, and both foolish and afraid. Once I had been chosen by the former emperor, there could be nothing between us, nor even the rumor of such. I knew that you would do what you did to protect my reputation. I would have done anything, I said, if you had asked me. That is the true shame I have borne these past fifteen years, Teiko said softly. I let this person you detest be the one to break your heart, because I lacked the courage to do it myself. I heard later that he took undue pleasure in this. I must bear the blame for that also. Fifteen years. I could feel the weight of every single one of them on my shoulders. Why are you telling me this now? Because I needed to tell you, she said. More importantly, you needed to hear it and know just how unworthy I am of your regard before you choose to throw your life away after mine. Or do you still wish to speak to me of things that cannot be undone? Perhaps it was a test. Perhaps it was a challenge. Perhaps it was the simple truth. I only knew what remained true for me. My decision is not altered, I said. I would like to know yours. There were tears in her dark eyes now. There are things we may not speak of even now. If it is our fate to reach Suma together, speak to me then, and I will answer you. The demons were teasing me on my dreams. At least, so I believe. In a vision, I saw myself and Teiko at the beach at Suma. The land was desolate, but the sea was beautiful, and it met most of our needs. We walked on its shore. Teiko was laughing. It was the most exquisite of sounds. At least, until she started laughing at me. And it wasn't Teiko at all, but some ogress with Teiko's smile. "'What have you done with Teiko?' I demanded." But the demon just mocked me. I drew my sword, but the blade was rusted and useless. It would not cut. I looked around frantically at the sea, but there was nothing but gigantic waves, one after another racing toward the beach. Sailing against them was one small boat. I could see Teiko there, her back turned to me, sailing away. I ignored the demon and chased after her, but the sea drove me back again and again, until her boat was swallowed by the attacking sea. Amara. Someone was calling me. The ogress? I did not care. Teiko was gone. Lord Yamada! I was shaken violently awake. Kanamura kneeled beside my blankets, looking frantic. What, what's happened? I said, trying to shake off the nightmare. My sister is missing. Help us search! I was awake now. How? Her guards worked in paired shifts. Kanamura looked disgusted as I scrambled to my feet. The fools swear they never took their eyes off of her, that Teiko and her maids were sleeping peacefully. And then suddenly Teiko wasn't there. Nonsense! They must have been playing Go or some such rot. 
I'll have their heads for this. We'll need their heads to help us search. She could not have gotten far. Go ahead, I will catch up. Kanamura ran through the camp with me not far behind. When I came to the place where I knew Teiko and her ladies had been sleeping, I paused. The two maidservants were huddled together looking confused and frightened, but I ignored them. There was a small screen for some privacy, but no way Teiko could have left the spot without one of the guards seeing her. I looked in and found her bedding undisturbed, but empty. I pulled her coverlet aside and found a crumpled piece of paper. She's up there! I heard Kanamura call to me from the shore of the lake, and I raced to join him. Just a little further down the shoreline was a place where the mountains dropped sheer to the water. On the very edge of that high promontory stood a small figure dressed in flowing white, as for a funeral. Teiko, no! I started to shout a warning to Kanamura, but he was already sprinting ahead, looking for the quickest route up the slope, and I followed hot on his heels. But it was far too late. In full sight of both of us, Teiko calmly stepped off the edge. With her broad sleeves fluttering like the wings of a butterfly, one could almost imagine her fall would be softened, but the sound of her body striking the water carried across the lake like the crack of ice breaking on the Kamo River in spring. One could also imagine, first hope having failed, that there would be nothing in the water to find except, perhaps, a few scraps of paper. One tried very hard to hold on to this hope, and only relented when the fishermen from a nearby village helped us locate and remove the cold, broken body of former Princess Teiko from the deep, dark waters of the sacred lake. The moon was high again and cast its reflection on the river. The modest funeral rites for Teiko were well underway, and once more I stood on the Shijo Bridge, staring down at the moon and the dark water beneath it. Again I saw the Onibi flare out on the water. I knew that if I waited long enough, the ghost lights would be followed by the graceful spirits of women who had drowned themselves for love. I had seen them before. They would soon appear just above the water in solemn procession, drifting a bit as if with the currents below. The legend was that men unfortunate enough to stare at them too closely would drown themselves out of love as well. I wondered if I too, before I drowned myself in turn, might see one small figure with the face of Princess Teiko. I didn't know what Kanamura intended when he appeared beside me on the bridge. At that moment I did not care. I simply gazed at the moon's reflection and waited for whatever might come. He placed a small scroll on the railing in front of me. This is for you, Lord Yamada, he said formally. I frowned. What is it? A letter, he said, from my sister. I have already opened and read the one intended for me. I didn't move or touch the letter. Meticulous. She had this planned before we even left the capital. She never intended to go to Suma. The shame of her disgrace was too much to bear, he said. He sounded about as convinced as I was. I rather doubt, I said, that there was anything your sister could not bear at need. 
Then why did she do it? he asked softly. A simple question that covered so much. And yet, at the moment, I didn't have a clear answer. I think I understood more of what had happened than Kanamura did, but the why of it all was as big a mystery to me as it was to him. I shared the one thing I thought I knew for certain. I've only been able to think of one clear reason. I have been drinking for the past day or so to see if I could perhaps forget that reason. Have you succeeded? No. He leaned against the rail with me. Out on the water, the mists were forming into the likenesses of young women. Kanamura glanced at them nervously. Then share that reason with me, preferably someplace else. I smiled. You must drink with me, then. If needs must, then let's get to it. I picked up Taiko's letter, and we left the ghostly women behind. From there, we went to the widow Tamahara's establishment, as it was the closest. Usually it was filled with drinking some ruru, but for the moment all was quiet. We found an unused table, and Kanamura ordered sake, which the smiling widow Tamahara delivered personally. Kanamura poured out two generous measures, and we drank in companionable silence until Kanamura could stand it no longer. So, what is the answer you drink to forget? The only obvious and immediate answer is that, upon her death, you will be free to return to the capital and look after Takahito. He frowned. But... You were going to be with her. I sighed deeply, which did not alter her plans in the slightest, as apparently I was not an acceptable alternative. That is a very sad thing to bear, he said after a while, and also very odd. I know my sister was fond of you. Maybe, and yet... Yet what? I took a deep breath, and then an even deeper drink. And yet there is a voice deep in my brain that keeps shouting that I am a complete and utter ass, that I do not understand anything, and the reason Teiko killed herself had nothing to do with me. Try as I might, drink as I might, that troublesome fellow only shouts louder. You have suffered greatly because of my family, Kanamura said, and I know that I have no right to ask more of you. Yet it was my sister's wish that you read her letter. Will you grant her last request? I didn't answer right away. I once asked what you were afraid of, Kanamura-san. I think it only fair to tell you what I am afraid of. I am very afraid of what Princess Teiko will say to me now. Yet there was never really any question of refusing. I took out the letter. After hesitating as long as I dared, I broke the seal. In doing so, I discovered that when I feared the very worst, I had shown entirely too little imagination. And yes, I was, in fact, a complete and utter ass. The letter was very short, and this is most of what it said. The crane flies above the lake's clear, shining surface, White feathers glisten, made pure by sacred water, as the poet's book was cleansed. At the end of the poem she had simply written, Forgive me, 
Tahiko. I thought, perhaps, if one day I was able to forgive myself, maybe then I would find the strength to forgive Tahiko. Not this day, but that didn't matter. I had other business. I put the letter away. Come by, Kanamura-san. Let us finish this jar of fine sake. I knew Kanamura was deeply curious about the letter, but too polite to ask, for which I was grateful. He hefted the container and frowned. It is almost empty. I'll order another. No, my friend, for this is all we will drink tonight. From here we will visit the baths, and then go to sleep. For tomorrow our heads must be clear. Why, what happens tomorrow? Tomorrow we restore your sister's honor. The imperial court was composed more of tradition and ritual than people. Everything in its time, everything done precisely so. Yet it was astonishing to me how quickly matters could unfold given the right impetus. Kanamura kneeled beside me in the hall where justice, or at least Fujiwara no Santaro's version of it, was dispensed. The minister had not yet taken his place on the dais, but my attention was on a curtained alcove on the far side of the dais. I knew I had seen that curtain move. I leaned over and whispered to Kanamura, His Majesty Reizei is present, I hope. I believe so, accompanied by Chancellor Yorimichi, I expect. He will not show himself, of course. Of course. The acknowledged presence of the emperor in these proceedings was against form, but that didn't matter. He was here, and everyone knew it. I was almost certain he would be once word reached him. Kanamura, through another relative in close attendance on his majesty, made sure that word did so reach him. I think Lord Sentaro convened in such haste as a way to prevent that eventuality, but in this he was disappointed. He entered now, looking both grave and more than a little puzzled. Kanamura leaned close. I've sent a servant for a bucket of water, as you requested. I hope you know what you're doing. Kanamura was obviously apprehensive. Under the circumstances, I did not blame him. Yet I was perfectly calm. I claimed no measure of courage greater than Kanamura's. I simply had the distinct advantage that I no longer cared what happened to me. What is this matter you have brought before the Imperial Ministry? Lord Santaro demanded from the dais. I am here to remove the unjust stain on the honor of the late Princess Heiko, daughter of the Emperor Sanjo, Imperial Consort to the late Emperor Suzaku II, I said, clearly and with more than enough volume to carry my words throughout the room. There was an immediate murmur of voices from the clerks, minor judges, members of the court, and attendants present. Lord Santaro glared for silence until the voices subsided. This unfortunate matter has already been settled. Lady Teiko was identified by my nephew, who died a hero's death in Mutsu province. Consider your words carefully, Lord Yamada. I choose my words with utmost care, Your Excellency. Your nephew was indeed a hero and brought honor to the Fujiwara family. He did not, however, name Princess Teiko as his lover. This I will prove. Lord Sentaro motioned to me closer, and when he leaned down, his words were for me alone. 
Shall I have cause to embarrass you a second time, Lord Yamada? Up until that point, I almost felt sorry for the man, but no longer. Now my blade, so to speak, was drawn. We shall soon see, Lord Minister of Justice. May I examine the letter? He indicated assent, and I returned to my place as Lord Centaro's stentorian voice boomed across the room. Produce my nephew's letter so that Lord Yamada may examine it and see what everyone knows is plainly written there. A few snickers blossomed like weeds here and there in the courtroom, despite the seriousness of the proceedings, but I ignored them. A waiting clerk hurried up, bowed low, and handed me the letter in question. I unrolled it, and then signaled Kanamura, who in turn signaled someone waiting at the back of the room. A young man in Tyira livery came hurrying up with a bucket of clear water, placed it beside me, and then withdrew. Lord Centaro frowned. Lord Yamada, did you neglect to wash your face this morning? More laughter. I was examining the poem closely and did not bother to look up. The water is indeed to wash away a stain, Lord Centaro, not, however, one of mine. The letter was not very long, and mostly spoke of the things Kiyoshi had seen and the hardships of the camp. The poem actually came after his personal seal. I unrolled the letter in its entirety, no more than the length of my forearm, and carefully dipped the paper into the water. There was consternation in the court. Two guards rushed forward, but one glare from Prince Kanamura made them hesitate, looking to Lord Centaro for instruction. Lady Taiko's sin dishonors us all, Lord Centaro said, and his voice was pure sweet reason. But the letter has been witnessed by hundreds. Destroying it will change nothing. I am not destroying the letter, Lord Centaro. I am merely cleansing it, as the poet Ono no Komachi did in our great-grandsire's time. Too late, the fool understood. A hundred years before, a lady of the court had been accused by an enemy of copying a poem from an old book and presenting the piece as her own work. She faced her accuser and washed the book in question in clear water, just as I was doing now, and with the same result. I held the letter up high for all to see. Kiyoshi's letter was, of course, perfectly intact. Except for the poem. That was gone. More consternation. Lord Centaro looked as if someone had struck him between the eyes with a very large hammer. I didn't wait for him to recover. It is a sad thing, I said, again making certain my voice carried to every corner and alcove of the court, that a mere hundred years after the honored poet Ono no Kamachi exposed this simple trick, that we should fall for it again. The ink in Fujiwara no Kiyoshi's letter is of course untouched, for it has been wedded to this paper for the past fifteen years. Clearly, the poem slandering Princess Teiko was added within the month. Are you accusing me? Lord Centaro stopped. But it was too late. He himself had made the association. I needed to do little else. I accuse no one. I merely state two self-evident facts that Teiko Hime was innocent, and that whoever wrote the poem accusing her had both access to the letter, and here I paused for emphasis, and access to a Fujiwara seal. 
These conclusions are beyond dispute, Excellency. At the present time, the identity of the person responsible is of lesser concern. The man was practically sputtering. But, but she was here! Why did Princess Tieko not speak up? She said nothing! I bowed low. How should innocence answer a lie? The murmuring of the witnesses was nearly deafening for a time. It had only just begun to subside when a servant appeared from behind the alcove, hurried up to the dais, and whispered briefly in Lord Santaro's ear. His face, before this slowly turning a bright pink, now turned ashen gray. Connemora and I bowed to the court as the official part of the proceedings were hastily declared closed. The proceedings that mattered most, I knew, had just begun. That evening, Kanamora found me once more on Shijo Bridge. The moon was beginning to wane, now past its full beauty, but I still watched its reflection in the water as I waited for the ghosts to appear. Kanamora approached and then leaned against the rail next to me. Well, I asked. Teiko's honors and titles are to be posthumously restored, he said. Lord Santaro is, at his own expense and at Chancellor Yorimichi's insistence, arranging prayers for her soul at every single temple in Kyoto. If you'll pardon my saying so, Kanamura-san, you don't seem happy about it. For the memory of my sister I am, he said. Yet one could also wish we had discovered this deception soon enough to save her. Still... I will have satisfaction against Lord Santaro over this minister of justice or no. I laughed. No need. Even assuming that the expense of the prayers doesn't ruin him, Lord Santaro will be digging clams at the beach at Suma or Akashi within a month, or I will be astonished, I said. It's enough. Enough! It was his slander that killed my sister. Though I must ask, while we're on the subject... How did you know? I had hoped to spare us both this additional pain, but clearly Kanamura wasn't going to be content with what he had. There was that much of his sister in him. Lord Sentaro did not kill your sister, Kanamura-san. We did. One can never reliably predict a man's reaction to the truth. I thought it quite possible that Kanamura would take my head then and there, not sure what was stopping him. But while he was staring at me in shock, I recited the poem from his sister's letter. I trust you get the illusion, I said when I was done. From the stunned look on the poor man's face, it was obvious that he did. Teiko knew the poem was a forgery? Why didn't she... At that moment, Kanamura's expression bore a striking resemblance to Lord Sentaro's earlier in the day. I nodded. You understand now. Taiko knew the poem was forged for the obvious reason, that she did it herself. She used a carefully chosen ink that matched the original for color, but was of poorer quality. I don't know how she acquired the proper seal, but I have no doubt that she did so. It's likely she started the original rumors as well, probably through her maids. We can confirm this but I see no need. Kanamura grasped for something, anything. If Lord Santaro thought the letter was genuine, that does explain why he didn't destroy it. 
But it does not explain why he didn't use it himself. Why didn't he accuse Taiko openly? I have no doubt he meant to confront her in private if he'd had the chance. But in court? Why should he? If Takahito was Kiyoshi's son, then the emperor's heir was a Fujiwara after all. And with Teiko the dowager empress under Sentaro's thumb, thanks to that letter. Until that day came, he could continue to champion Prince Norihira. But he won no matter who took the throne, or so the fool thought. Teiko was not mistaken when she said Sentaro was searching for the letter. He wanted it back as much as she did. Kanamura, warrior that he was, continued to fight a lost battle. Rubbish! Why would Teiko go to such lengths to deliberately dishonor herself? I met his gaze. To make her son emperor. Despite my sympathy for Kanamura, I had come too far alone. Now he was going to share my burden whether he liked it or not. I gave him the rest. Consider this. So long as the Fujiwara preferred Prince Norihira, Takahito's position remained uncertain. Would the Teiko you knew resign herself to that if there was an alternative? Any alternative? Kanamura looked grim. No, she would not. I nodded. Just so. Teiko gave Sentaro possession of the letter solely to show that he could have altered it. Then she likewise arranged for the letter to disappear and for us to find it again. In hindsight, I realized that it had all been a little too easy, though not so easy as to arouse immediate suspicion. Those Shikigami might very well have killed me if I'd been alone. But Teiko sent you to make certain that did not happen. Her attention to detail was really astounding. Kanamura tried again. But if this was her plan, then it worked perfectly. Lord Sentaro was humiliated before the Emperor, the Chancellor, the entire court. His power is diminished. She didn't have to kill herself. I almost laughed again. Humiliated? Diminished? Why should Teiko risk so much and settle for so little? With the responsibility for her death laid solely at his feet, Lord Sentaro's power at court has been broken. The entire Fujiwara clan has taken a blow that will be a long time healing. No one will oppose Prince Takahito's claim to the throne now, or dare speak ill of your sister in or out of the Imperial Presence. It was Teiko's game, Kanamura-san. She chose the stakes. Kanamura finally accepted defeat. Even the Shikigami. Gochi-san, I swear I did not know. I believe you. Teiko understood full well what would have happened if she'd confided in either of us. Yet we can both take comfort in this much. We did not fail your sister. We both performed exactly as she hoped. Kanamura was silent for a time. When he spoke again, he looked at me intently. I thought my sister's payment was in gold. I was wrong. She paid in revenge. I grunted. Lord Sentaro? That was satisfying, I admit. But I'd compose a poem praising the beauty of the man's hindquarters and recite it in front of the entire court tomorrow. If 
that would bring your sister back. He managed a brief smile then, but his expression quickly turned serious again. Not Centaro. I mean, you could have simply ignored Teiko's final poem, and her death would have been for nothing, and my nephew's ruin complete and final. She offered this to you. I smiled. She knew. Well, say in all fairness that she left the choice to me. Was that a choice at all, Kanamura-san? He didn't answer, but then I didn't think there was one. I stood, gazing out at the moon's reflection. The charming ghosts were in their procession. I think my neck was extended at the proper angle. The rest, so far as I knew or cared, was up to Kanamura. I felt his hand on my shoulder. I'm not sure if that was intended to reassure me or steady himself. You must drink with me, Goji-san, he said. It wasn't a suggestion. I must drink, I said, with or without you. We returned to the widow Tamahara's establishment. I wondered if we would drink to the point of despair and allow ourselves to be swallowed up by the darkness. Or would we survive and go on as if I had said nothing at all on Shoji Bridge? While we waited for our sake, I think I received an answer of sorts as Kanamura's attention wandered elsewhere in the room. He watched the Sumuru laughing and drinking at the other low tables, and his distaste was obvious. A sorry lot, always drinking and whoring and gambling when they're not killing each other. Kanamura sighed deeply and continued, And yet, they are the future. I frowned. These louts? What makes you think so? Our sake arrived, and Kanamura poured. Think. No, Koji-san, I know. Year by year, the power and wealth of the provincial daimyos increases, and their private armies are filled with these samurai, he said, now using the more common, corrupted word, whose loyalties are to their lords and not the emperor. They are the reason upstarts like the Abe clan are able to create so much trouble in the first place. Dark days are ahead, if you are correct. Kanamura raised his cup. Dark days are behind as well. So, it seemed we had chosen to live, and in my heart I hoped that at least for a while things might get better. To that end I drank, and as the evening progressed I used the sake to convince myself that all the things I needed desperately to believe were really true. I told myself that Teiko was right to do as she did, that it wasn't just family scheming or royal ambition, that Kanamora and I, though mostly unaware, had helped her to accomplish a good thing, a noble thing, and time would prove it so. First, in the continued decline of the power and influence of the Fujiwara. Second, in the glory to come under the reign of Crown Prince Takahito, soon to be known to history as His Imperial Majesty Sanjo II. My son...
episode 21, Katie Wentworth's Holla Iron Thighs and the Change of Life, the story of a heroic chick and her shrinking chainmail, either hit people's funny bones or it didn't. There were a lot of mehs. On the board, Itant said, story, eh, entertaining, not memorable in the least. It's been 30 minutes since I've heard it, and already I find it difficult to recall what it contained. A few posters found that it had distinctly failed to amuse in the least. Board member Rain said, I have to agree with those who thought that the humor seemed forced rather than natural. The text was practically a palimpsest where certain lines were scrawled above a hastily erased insert joke here. But those sentiments were by no means unanimous. A number of people found the story very funny. Hyperion on the blog said, I refuse to believe that anyone with mammalian DNA would not laugh at this story. It was hysterical. And on the board, Sandical said, I listened to this story on my walk this evening. I must have looked like a crazy lady because I kept laughing out loud. I just couldn't help it. Humor is a funny and very individual thing, isn't it? It's kind of interesting. If you've got an opinion, please come share it with us at forum.escapeartist.info. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnitude.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. William Shakespeare said, By heaven, methinks it were an easy leap to pluck bright honor from the pale-faced moon, or dive into the bottom of the deep, where fathom line could never touch the ground, and pluck up drowned honor by the locks. Yeah.